You are now listening to the Soul and Wonder Podcast, Episode 40, Psychedelics and Spiritual Growth with Dennis McKenna. Welcome to the Soul and Wonder Podcast, where the conduits of the body, depths of the mind, and atlas of the soul are explored with devotion. Through cultural exchange, Christopher and Sarah and their guests will deliver sacred wisdom from around the globe, uncovering the hidden gems of conscious living and holistic healing, all to empower you on your journey of self-discovery. And now, here are your hosts, Christopher and Sarah. Welcome to the Soul and Wonder podcast. We are your hosts, Sarah and Christopher. Hello, everybody. We're so happy to have you here in this awesome, awesome conversation and interview where we get to share space with Dennis McKenna. Some of you may have heard of his brother, Terence McKenna, a well-known ethnobotanist, psychonaut, mystic, and philosopher, and Dennis is just as cool. We're so excited to dive into his story, but before we do, I want to read some But before we do, I want to share with you a lovely love note, a review left for us on our iTunes by Tiffany L. Campos, 1986. She says, this podcast is awesome, all caps. Not only is it creative, informative, and beneficial, you get information that is extremely helpful. We're glad you feel that way, Tiffany, because we think that our guests are super great and they bring a wealth of knowledge to you and we just absolutely love doing this yes it is such a pleasure doing this and we like to bring on a wide variety of people from all walks of life and it takes a lot of time to plan ahead for all these episodes but we want to be diverse in the sense of bringing topics that you're gonna enjoy so with that being said if there is somebody or a topic that you may want covered within the holistic healing realm that's physical mental emotional spiritual development let us know and we will do our best to yes, get them on absolutely and christopher tell them about what's coming so we are leaving on monday this coming monday november 20th for sarasota florida where we're going to be speaking at the solutionary health festival on saturday november 25th we are going to be premiering our keynote topic, Finding Health, Happiness, and Connection, the Body-Mind-Soul Approach to Veganism. So we're super stoked for this. Really, really stoked to share the space with some amazing speakers, vendors. There's going to just be so much happening down there. So if you are in the Sarasota area or the surrounding areas in Tampa, Venice, wherever, please come out and join us. It's going to be a great day. We're really looking forward to it. There's going to be music and food, vegan food. Yes, all very delicious. Yes, absolutely. Now, you're probably like, all right, all right, I want to know about Dennis because he's so awesome. Dennis McKenna is a pharmacognosist, lecturer, and author, and has conducted research for over 30 years in ethnopharmacology, which is the scientific study of substances used medicinally by different ethnic or indigenous groups. He is a founding member, a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator on the Waska Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca, which 
if you haven't already, backtrack in time a little bit and check out some of our earlier episodes of this podcast where we talk about our own personal experience with the wonderful plant medicine of ayahuasca and interview someone uh, about his life and how it changed him through the use of this plant medicine. Yes, I believe it's episode five and six or four and five. I can't quite remember, but uh, we do detail a lot about our experiences with ayahuasca and as Sarah mentioned, other people's experiences. Yes, so Dennis is currently the assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota, so that's where you can find him. And in this conversation, we really break it down. It's, we, you know, obviously one of those talks that could have gone for six hours, so we jam-packed it with a bunch of interesting philosophical conversation. We talked about the chain of events leading to the beginning of Dennis and Terrence's journey into the realm of psychedelics, which is where he shares with us his super intriguing experience with mushrooms at La Chorera in the Amazon jungle in 1971. Some of you are probably already familiar with that story if you've read any of his brother Terrence's work. Dennis also shares it in his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. So we also talk about psychedelic phenomena of seemingly telepathic powers, the ability to pierce the veil and more, catalyzing our journey of exploration into the mystery. And we dive into curious premonitions of how different this world might be if the majority of our modern Western population safely indulged in hallucinogenic experiences and implemented those lessons learned into their daily lives. And let me tell you, it's a much better world to live in. If only it could come true. And of course, Dennis brings us up to date on the happenings in his life and research and gives us some wonderful advice and words of wisdom on how to make this world a better place. Yes, so stay tuned. That interview is coming up. But before we get to that, we do want to say that majority of our interviews are done via Skype or Zoom. Unfortunately, we can't be in person with everybody you know, although we wish we could. Uh, So therefore, sometimes the audio can be not the best. Uh, We try to edit it to where it can be, you know, where you can listen to it and feel comfortable with where it's at. But again, it's not always going to be tip top shape. So please bear with us as we work through some of this stuff. And eventually in the future, we'll be having more guests in person. So we can then provide a little bit better audio quality for you. Absolutely. And of course, stick around to the health tip of the episode at the end of the interview. All right, let's get ready for Dennis. Enjoy. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are super happy to have Dennis McKenna on the show with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, as we said before we were recording, we're just super happy to have you here. There's so many things we could talk about. And, you know, I just want to dive in from the beginning. You know, I think a lot of people are wondering, what, where did this all begin for you? What experience or moment in time specifically piqued your interest in the study of plant medicine and hallucinogenic drugs in general in relation to the human psyche and consciousness? Well, I don't know if there was any one event. Uh, there were a few events. 
that kind of triggered it. I, you know, I'm I'm 66, so I was a child of the 60s, right? And uh, in that time, there was a lot of interest in psychedelics and and all that, and and you know, it was a very turbulent time, political unrest, not unlike today. You know, we had Vietnam, we had all of that. Um, but, you know, I would have to credit two, uh, well, of course, my brother was a big influence on me because he was four years older than I was, than I am, or whatever you say. And uh, so he was in Berkeley at the time, uh, starting school or being, in, you know, uh, being involved in at least nominally enrolled in school, but kind of at the, uh, at the heart of the social and cultural ferment. Well, I was still a high schooler stuck back in this town in Western Colorado. So, and wanting to be out there. And, uh, but I did, in fact, get to go to, uh, to Berkeley and Haight Ashbury in 1967, which was the summer of love, as you know, supposedly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, what possessed my father to let me go? <laughs> I, I have no idea. You know, he, I mean, he didn't approve of any of this, and he had to. And, and we were kind of at loggerheads uh, about it. Uh, but for whatever reason, he let me go. So I guess you know, I had my first real psychedelic experience there in uh, in Berkeley in 1967, which was like a lot of people LSD. And, you know, we just basically got it off the streets, but it was turned out to be pretty good. And so that was a revelation. Uh, but the real revelation didn't come until uh, I got home and we took, uh, I, I took back with me uh, a sample of DMT, mm. which parents was able to get. Very rare those days, very hard to get a hold of, but he work the matrix, you know, and he had <laughs> stuff. And he thought that it was far more interesting than LSD or any or mescaline or any of the other things that, you know, were floating around that, that he tried. And when I got it back to Colorado and went up to a remote place in Western Colorado to, to bioassay it, do the classical large animal bioassay, you know? Um, yeah, I had to agree. It was pretty incredible and amazing. And uh, uh, so we were on the same page, my brother and I, about that. That yes, the psychedelics as a group are very interesting. DMT is the most interesting. <laughs> I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, we thought it was not just the most interesting drug we, we'd encountered, you know, in our limited experience. It was simply the most interesting thing we'd stumbled across in our lives, you know. I mean, it was sort of like, how can something like this even exist, you know? So that, that's really what got us interested in altered states and psychedelics and Eventually, you know, we found out about the shamanic traditions associated with these things, which gave us a context, you know, for mm -hmm. sort of 
learning about them. Uh, uh, you know, in the 60s, I think LSD had such an impact on our culture because there was really not much of a cultural context. You know, you had Timothy Leary out there who was who was uh, proselytizing for it, evangelizing for it. Everybody else was appalled. There was very little awareness in the culture that actually these things had been around for thousands of years. And, you know, there were ways to use them and, and people had been using them. So it was really the discovery of the cultural context um, that that helped my brother and myself to orient ourselves to to where these things might be what their where their origins were and, and what they really were you know so uh, when we uh discovered lsd uh, i mean discovered dmt um it was quite amazing but one of the things about it was it was very short as you know it only lasted 15 minutes or so and so we thought it might be interesting if we can find a longer lasting version of it so you can spend more time in that state. Oh, an orally active version, in fact, we naively thought. And, as a, and then a few years later, we stumbled on a paper called uh, Varola as an orally active hallucinogen. And it was by Richard Schultes, who was the famous Harvard ethnobotanist that really you know, spent many years in the Amazon tracking down a lot of these psychoactive plants. The fact that Varola is the is the genus of it's a genus of trees in the nutmeg family, actually, the where they use the bark or the sap, the sap mainly to make a snuff. Certain tribes make a snuff out of mm -hmm. the Yanomami and other related tribes. And the, the, the sap of uh, Farolas are very high in DMT, as well as 5-methoxy-DMT and so on. So, uh, but they make a snuff out of it, so it's also short-acting, right? So, but when we found out there were some other tribes, namely the Witotos, that make an orally active form of DMT, we thought, that's it. You know, we got to go for that. And so, you know, that's the secret. Well, it turns out that no, it wasn't the secret, <laughs> but it did lead us to drop everything, drop out of school, quit jobs, whatever, you know, careers or whatever we thought we had that was didn't matter, uh, you know, because we were off on a great adventure. You know, we were looking for the secret, which is what we called it didn't know what it was but we knew it had to be important right and so so that is what led us to go to south america for the first time in 1971 was to look for this witoto obscure witoto hallucinogen and we went to la Chirera only because it was the ancestral home of the witotos and you know long story short so we went there in search of this thing. When we got there, which was another arduous, you know, adventure, but when we finally ended up there, 
we had met an anthropologist on the way in to uh, as we went up one of these rivers the way you get there is you we went down the putumayo river and up another river called the uh uh igara parana and then across the trail to a parallel river and that was where lachera was and so when we went up the first river we encountered an anthropologist at uh a little village and he was studying the Witoto and, and uh, we kind of expected to run into him. Uh, you know, we've been told by people in Bogota that Dr. Guzman was, his actual name was Horatio Collier, but in my brother's book he was called Guzman, but that he was out working with his people. So they said, yeah, you'll probably run into him. Uh, and so we kind of were expecting to. And when we went to this village, there he was with this little English wife, very peculiar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were expecting to encounter him. He was in no way expected to encounter us, you know. And we were, he was pretty appalled when we <laughs> just showed up out of nowhere. <laughs> no communication in those days. You couldn't, like, send a text or an email. Sure. You know, and so we march into this village and by this time there are about five of us and, and you know we are far more colorful than the Witoto. i mean <laughs> we're, we're like right out of hate ashbury we have beards down to our waist we have bills and beads and you know the whole nine yards right and so it's like who in the hell are these people uh, <laughs> why the hell did you end up here <laughs> yeah right I mean, and then when we, when we, uh, so we were there, but you know, in the in the manner of jungle hospitality, of course, they they did say, you know, you're not welcome. They gave us a, a hut uh, on the edge of the village to to stay overnight, and uh, Dr. Collier hoped it was only overnight. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> and, and but in the conversation, we told him we were headed to Lachereur and we were trying to find this. Witoto drug, which was called Ukuhe, you know, and he totally freaked out. You know, he said, you cannot go in there and start talking about this because they will kill you. And this is the biggest secret of the Witoto shamans. You know, they, they don't even, they don't even talk about it to their own people. This is like wow. a big thing. And how did you find out about it? Oh my God, why are you here? And <laughs> <laughs> wow. He was quite wound up about it, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, constantly chewing coca also, which he did, was <laughs> paranoid, you know. I can see why. <laughs> so we were like, okay, yeah, doc, whatever, don't worry about it, we'll be cool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so after a couple of days, we went on up the trail, we got to La Chirera, and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, despite what our casual attitude, we really did respect what he said, and we were not about to just blurt it out. We were going to settle in and check out the scene, you know, and find if there was an informant who could really talk to us about it. So, so we did that. But then what we encountered when we got to La Chirera was unexpected. It was the little mission village around which they have and cleared some pasture they cleared the the forest for about 200 acres all around the village they brought in these 
Cebu cattle, which are the white humped cattle, you know, that's common in the tropics. That is the preferred substrate for psilocybe commences, which is the, you know, pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. Mm. And we had hit the top, you know, the peak season, apparently, because out of every cow pie were these big, beautiful clusters of psilocybin mushrooms. Wow. Which we had no experience with before, very little. I mean, we had our only previous experiences that on the way in to La Trier, we'd been at a village, we stopped at a village on the way and encountered one of these specimens in, in the pasture and, and tasted it, but very little effect, you know, not enough. But at La Trier, they were everywhere. And uh, and we were very cavalier. We did not realize, you know, when we got there. We thought we thought essentially we approached it as a recreational diversion. We thought these these will be great, you know. We can, <laughs> we can play with these while we're looking for the real mystery, which was this ukuhe, you know. And uh, and we can just enjoy the mushrooms I'm, I'm kind of a because I'm, I'm sure you've probably had experience with mushrooms yeah mm -hmm. yes we have yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay well okay <laughs> uh, um on at low levels they can be very nice quite recreational at higher mm -hmm. levels they can get pretty darn strange you know oh yes <laughs> Our, they are the equivalent of anything. People don't respect them enough because they don't realize, you know, what's just beyond a low dose level, you know, mm -hmm. how bizarre they can get. And so we started eating those things pretty much every day. There wasn't a whole lot else to eat, frankly. I mean, we <laughs> make some very nice omelet. We put it in our food. You know, we were we were eating. A lot, and uh, and it quickly became clear, kind of that you know that was the real mystery. Um, we'd gone looking for this orally active form of DMT, right? Well, actually, psilocybin is the perfect orally active form of DMT, if you know anything about the chemistry. Sure. So, so psilocybin is converted to psilocin in the body and that trivial molecular difference from dmt just one atom is psilocin is four hydroxy dimethyltryptamine mm -hmm. and that one difference is enough to make it orally active and why it does that we don't need to go into here but usually dmt you have to combine it with an mao inhibitor less than mm -hmm. Then that protects it from being broken down. But psilocin doesn't require that, so it's 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 ready to to go, as it were. You, no preparation required. It is the effort to bend down and pick it up and eat it. <laughs> Pop it in, you're good to go. <laughs> Pop it in, and you're good to go. <laughs> boy, oh boy, did we go? Quickly you know, <laughs> started. Uh, explaining a few things, and uh, we were 
it's like we were in the presence of an intelligent entity. Um, we didn't know whether it was the mushrooms or whether it was something communicating through the mushrooms. We were not sure, but we were not sure about everything at that point. But, but we conceived of this thing as, a, as the teacher, and we even called it the teacher. And what was it teaching us? It was teaching us a number of things. Uh, but, and this is where I, I hesitate to, to get too much into the details because we'll never get out of them, you know? <laughs> Down the rabbit hole. <laughs> right. So have either of you read uh, any of, have you read True Hallucinations or? Yes. Read, okay, so you know this story. Mm -hmm. And basically, the mushroom started downloading information about how to transform our, our bodies and our DNA, you know, essentially into a UFO. Uh, if the UFO is a metaphor for the ultimate physical object, or in this case, I would say the ultimate biophysical object. You know, as so many of these sorts of, you know, in in history I and mean, in esoteric philosophy and all this, this idea of something that is kind of a machine, kind of an organism, kind of a substance, kind of something, you know, that has miraculous properties. So the alchemists called it the philosopher's stone. Uh, you know, we call it the UFO. Uh, <laughs> You know, but it's, it's the same thing. It's the ultimate artifact. And the mushroom was basically giving us instructions, almost a blueprint. Here's how you make your, yourself into a UFO or into this uh, transformed object. And we, were, we're not, we were following the, the sort of roughly the... Uh, you know, the, the procedures of alchemy. We were both really steeped in alchemical lore due to our interest in Jung, and, and that seemed to be a framework for carrying out this transformation. And so we did, and uh, things happened. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and in some ways it changed the world, you know. I mean, uh, uh, Terrence... Sure. Uh, uh, you know, came away from that with the uh, with the time wave idea. That's really, you know, the time wave. That was really the origin of his first thinking about time and cycles and all that. And he took away kind of the basic framework of the time wave and worked on it for you know the next thirty years or so. And uh, and I came away, uh, well, with some interesting ideas about this biophysical operation that we were, that we were trying to carry out. Um, but, you know, if you've read True Hallucination, you know, he was kind of the, the guy who stayed at home when I was the guy who went to the edge of the galaxy. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks, and when I finally got back on my feet, I was... I was pretty happy to be on my feet. <laughs> grounded in the earth. <laughs> uh, grounded again. And, 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 and uh, you know, I don't regret the effect, but, when, but the, the whole experience. But I was pleased that I was able to 
kind of reintegrated into consensus reality. <laughs> and um, in some respects, um, I guess you could say that that was a wake-up moment for me because it was what it, it made me want to kind of return my focus to ground down-to-earth issues in a way and, and study science. I had been studying at the time before I quit school, I was studying comparative religion, anthropology, and some biology, you know, which is about as close as you could get to ethnobotany. But when I went back, I sort of focused it even more and studied uh, more like chemistry and pharmacology because I was interested in how these things work and, and, and what happened to us. Um, but the one thing, you know, I think the one thing, when we did the experiment at La Chirera, we had a lot, we had made predictions about what was going to happen, you know, and those things didn't happen, probably because they could not have happened, you know, would have had to completely undermine the laws of physics and, and fine with that, but you know, the laws of physics did not cooperate, you know, and so as a result, something else had to happen. What mm -hmm. happened is we gave, we had, we each had a simultaneous uh, altered states, which lasted for about two weeks, and we could understand each other perfectly. We knew in the context of our madness what was going on. It made sense to us. Our friends, uh, <laughs> to the company goes, we're not so sure. You know? <laughs> I can imagine from their perspective. <laughs> it looked pretty hairy, and it was like, we have to get these people to a mental health facility. <laughs> but in the middle of the Amazon, that's kind of hard. So they just had to put up with it. And in the meantime, or raving through the pastures, uh, eating mushrooms, talking constantly, and just being flooded by the, the, these ideas. Um, and, you know, so eventually it began to fade away a bit, and we were able to get flown out of there. But it had a lasting impact because in terms of the, the time wave zero, I mean, Terrence obsessed about that for many years. And uh, then the other thing that we took away that was really tangible and, and actually had an impact was we took home with us um, spores of the mushrooms. And we spent the next two or three years trying to figure out how to grow those suckers because <laughs> we wanted them. We wanted access to the, uh, you know, to the, to the experience, but we also, wanted to share that with other people you mm. know, so could confirm that yes there's really a pretty strange dimension out there or no the mckenna brothers are just deluded and nuts <laughs> we would have settled for either one but it turns out as you know the confirmation was mostly that yeah they opened some uh, pretty strange uh portals into some place and i think that was really, that was, you know, that was really, I mean, I don't want to boast, I'm not boasting, but I'm just saying that really made 
psychedelics available to a lot of people where it wasn't before, you know, mm -hmm. and absolutely relatively benign psychedelic, non-toxic. LSD was hard to get for many people with this little pamphlet that we published, uh, oh, Soul Sign of Magic Mushroom Growers Guide. Basically, any, any smart 10th grader could figure out how to do this. And, you know, a lot of them did. <laughs> uh, you know, you could go to the grocery store and buy the ingredients. And if you had the spores and you were patient, you could make it happen. And, uh, and many did. And so soon those, those mushrooms, you know, became commonly available. And now, now of course, there are much better ways to grow them. Sure. And I think that had an impact on society in the sense that it gave people access to these dimensions and made them at least think twice about, about what was going on. Um, so I can leave it there. I mean, yeah. It's very, very uh, fascinating experience, and it sort of sets you up for your life's destiny, you know, for your life's work, what you were meant to do in this world, and to go into an experience with having expectations. Generally, what happens is none of that happens overall, and we just let us let ourselves go and open ourselves up to all these incredible experiences one which you had with your brother yeah yeah i think it, i think psychedelics uh, you know have a profound influence on a lot of people you know at least it lets you step out of your reference frame and mm -hmm. you know for temporarily and then rethink maybe how you want your life to be where you want where you want to be going not everybody can throw themselves headlong into a, you know, into a life, uh, you know, dedicated to psychedelics. I mean, we were a little bit fanatical, a little bit fanatical. We were fanatics because because it was the most interesting thing we we'd encountered. But uh, but you know, I think it's a good tool for everyone you know uh to experience it at least a few times because it does tell you it tells you a lot of things but it tells you reality is not what it seems mm -hmm. you know that's what it tells you or there are aspects to reality that many people never suspect you know and, and would actually probably not be very happy if they did suspect it very true <laughs> they're sort of little comfortable worlds and uh, this really um, this really challenges a lot of your assumptions so, I, and that's a good thing. I wanted to comment really quickly on how you you know you mentioned that you you and the group that you were with you were having these shared experiences that you could understand each other although from the outside perspective people weren't quite getting it i've had that experience too where we actually had to make up our own language and we got through it making up this own language for uh, about 16 to 20 hours and what do you think is going on there? What do you think is happening that in that moment, those who are sharing that same substance and experience understand everything between each other's thoughts, their language that's not even English in our case, and why it seems that we're able to hold on to these realizations even after the substance has, has worn off, no matter how many realizations you had. It's like you can remember almost every single moment so profoundly, but other people just seem to kind of 
it's like it's like there's this this wall in between and it it doesn't quite pass through what's your opinion on that well i think that uh, I, i think that as far as remembering these things that's not so uh, that's not so surprising because they're they're impactful, you know. Uh, usually, psychedelic experiences, if they're special, you remember them. Just feel mm-hmm. like you remember other special events in your life. You know, you can probably remember, I don't know, the first time you kissed somebody, or the first mm-hmm. time you met love, or the first time you, you know, did various things. You may remember those things more vividly. Then, you know, the last time I answered email, for example, which <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so they just—they're uh, an experience of the of a different order, you know, that you tend to remember. Uh, so, I, I, it's not so much that that surprises me, but it, what is more surprising is that, you know, they. They to the people that have experienced them, you can't deny that the experiences are very peculiar and that they make a certain amount of sense. You know, they make a sense within the within the context of that experience. But people who have not had that, they're gonna look at you like, what? <laughs> now about these lizards materializing out of the wall. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just they just can't rock it, and and in some ways, I think that's why psychedelics are, you know, so so difficult to to uh, to, to discuss in some ways with people that have never had the experience. Very true. They don't get it, and they won't get it until they actually do it, and that makes the dialogue difficult, you know. And uh, and I think that. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't be one to say that everybody should take psychedelics. I think most people probably should take them at least once. You know, but if you if you have proclivities to schizophrenia and that sort of thing, maybe not so much. But generally, mm-hmm. a tool. And I think, you know, what they tell us, they tell us many things, or we can learn many things from psychedelics about the nature of reality about ourselves and you know and 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 to learn that reality is much more bizarre and and amazing than we think it is in just kind of mundane everyday life you know i think the quote's been attributed to various people but i think it was arthur eddington or jbs aldanus and the world is not only stranger than you suppose, it's stranger than you can suppose. <laughs> you know, and that really shows it in your face, the psychedelics do, especially something like DMT. You know, and, and to your question about how can you spend time in 20 hours where you're in a group, everyone in the group kind of knows what's going on. You might even share this language, which is not a common language. I just think that's part of the, you know, I mean, you can call it telepathy. It's a kind mm-hmm. of, I mean, what would telepathy be like? It's hard to say, but those kinds of group experiences do come close to the way you imagine telepathy might be. 
Well, I think I think humans undermine their own power of their consciousness. And then when we take the blinders off, so to say, and we open ourselves up to the to these worlds, um, whatever you want to call them, we're able to expose this a lot it's just in the open. So we're able to have these experiences. And I think a lot of times, obviously in such a rush that it freaks people out. Um, you know, I, for my first time I did DMT. So I went straight from zero to a hundred really quickly and more it, like 100,000, <laughs> more like a hundred thousand. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> only lasted 10 minutes, right? That's so, true. <laughs> yeah. So not too much chance to get into trouble. Well, that's, that's brave. You know, I mean, that's foolish, but brave. <laughs> we'll thank her for that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. The most important thing about psychedelics and, and how to uh, you know use them without uh, is you have to pay attention to sentence setting. And of course, you've heard people rant about this. You know, you have to do it. You have to respect them enough to do it mm -hmm. in a special place and a special time. That's really all it amounts to. Absolutely safe where you're not going to be molested or bothered by anybody who's you know not in on the joke right and uh and then the place where you can pay attention to what's going on and i think i think many people take mushrooms or whatever but often mushrooms they take light doses they go to parties they go to movies they socialize and all that that's fine. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these finger wankers. I think people can use it that way and that's fine. What they rarely suspect is if they up the dose a little bit, they would encounter these experiences that they may take much, they may take like doses of mushrooms for, for years and never even suspect that, you know, sort of just around the corner. There is some. There are some very strange places, and uh, worth exploring. You know. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That leads me actually into this next question that I have for you. What do you think would happen to modern Western culture if the majority of our population safely experienced the power of these hallucinogenic plants or substances and then learned how to integrate into their lives the lessons learned from their psychedelic ventures? How do you think that would change our culture? That was a planted question, wasn't it? You it was. <laughs> For hours. Well, <laughs> I think that it was would generally be a very good thing. You know, if if people could experience these things in in very well structured sets and settings, you know, if it were legal, uh, and there are different pro, you know, different psychedelics have different properties right and and my mm, i guess you could say my main plant teacher these days is ayahuasca and uh psilocybin as well i don't take it as often i think it would make a much better world you know frankly i, th I think it could be a more compassionate world mm. i think we treat each other better i think we treat nature better uh, and this is the problem the big problem of Western culture is we're becoming estranged from nature. Yes. And thought we do not value nature. And this is a bad 
thing and it's going to come back on us and it already is you know our minds suffer from the poisoning of 2000 years of this abrahamic male dominated religion actually and, and you know they're not they don't lead us to spiritual experiences they're designed to make sure we never get near a spiritual experience you know and so psychedelics are very threatening to the powers that be on in all institutions because they make you have funny ideas. You know, <laughs> funny ideas are dangerous. Yeah, you know, that's why psychedelics are dangerous. They, you know, there's a great deal of effort put into the, you know expanded i guess you could say in society by the people that think they run things and actually don't but they think they run things and much effort is directed toward uh sort of discouraging people to think for themselves mm -hmm. you know and and uh encouraging them to swallow a bunch of horseshit basically, yep. which is mm -hmm. presented to them as revealed truth. Psychedelics are the antidote to that, and they are very dangerous in that sense. You know, I am, I am, uh, I, I am, I am a person who just, I, I think that many of these religions and so on, they say, you have to have faith, you know, you just have to accept it. Saying you have to have faith is to say, you have to accept something without any evidence. Mm -hmm. and, you know, why should we do that? We should, agree. We should be skeptical about everything. And that's what's beautiful about psychedelics. You don't have to have faith. What you have to have is courage. You know, don't believe in it. I don't care if you believe in it. Sit down and smoke the damn pipe or, you know, drink the <laughs> brew. And make of it what you will. You know, I'm not even here to tell anybody what they're supposed to think about it. That's the difference. That's the difference. In fact, I'm all about telling people learn to use your own head. You know, learn to use your mind and think for yourself, and just be uh, skeptical of pretty much everything that anybody tells you. <laughs> you know, because that is where you you have true freedom. You know, so many people, I think what's wrong with our society, in many things, but I think what's wrong with our society is many people, they don't want to think for themselves. They would much rather be told what to think. Mm -hmm. So then you have these religious or corporate or academic figures who are more than happy to tell you what to think you know it's like i've got the truth here come follow me and that's a problem you know mm -hmm. because it encourages you from really examining sort of the basis of your assumptions and you know i think religions are particularly uh you know guilty of this mm -hmm. but but all of these institutions you know they do not want people who think for themselves because those people don't make you know they're, they're not good consumers they're, they're not, not slaves <laughs> they keep causing trouble they keep asking all these questions you know it's inconvenient <laughs> 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 sometimes actually dangerous and if you look at all these 
authoritarian movements and all uh, that have happened in history. It's it's basically to, you know, uh, to sort of reinforce this collective worldview and to suppress the people who, you know, keep raising their hands and say, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, and that's not welcome. So psychedelics are a catalyst to uh, this different kind of consciousness. And I think they, I think they encourage people to, you know, take charge of their, of their own states of mind, of their own minds in a certain way. So, you know, the war on drugs is really a war on consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know? Great talk by Graham Hancock, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm a friend of his, and, and he's actually right on. He's got he's got it. He's got it exactly right. So these things are like the bioweapons, in a certain way, of the consciousness movement. I don't like the term bioweapons, because you know, that implies death and people suffer. These don't kill anybody. Well, rarely. Uh, and usually from stupid use, right? I mean, the drugs sure. are not inherent, but they're no, they're no inoculation against idiocy, and there's plenty of that. <laughs> but rarely these things, considering the profound things that they do to consciousness, they're remarkably safe and remarkably non-toxic, and you know, with just a little bit of planning and information and inform, you know, and you, I'm sure you all know about Arrowwood and all that. Uh, and I tell people that's a very good source of information. If you're going to take something, you have a little experience with it, you can learn pretty much a lot, most of what you need to know if you spend a couple hours on Arrowwood. And they really have done the world a great service. So, uh, but yeah, I think that basically they they are catalysts for um, you know for conscious evolution in the sense that they give us the tool to take charge of our own consciousness, and uh, that's a very good thing. I mean, imagine a world uh, where we awaken to our co-creative consciousness because it's really been used against us. And that's the power that they do have, that they understand the magic behind that to use it against us. Now, if we took back that power, the world would be a totally different place. And to your point in regards to nature, I mean, that is... uh, Nature is such a wonderful teacher and within itself without the psychedelic. So add that on top of it. I mean, it's very powerful, but we've been so disconnected. We live in these, you know, urban settings where there's a lot of light pollution. We can't see the night sky anymore. When's the last time anybody's seen a starlit sky? You know, Sarah and I uh, lived in Africa for some time and we, we were serving as Peace Corps volunteers over there and we were able to sit in these incredible village settings where you would see the entire cosmos and just be able to connect on such a deep spiritual level and and that alone was a great catalyst for our our, our growth um, and our personal development so and, and many people uh you know who take ayahuasca particularly the others as well but ayahuasca for many people is a revelation about this relationship to nature you know, they go and, 
whatever their relationship, they come away realizing that, you know, we are part of nature. We don't own it. We don't dominate it. It's not for us to exploit. This is the message that, you know, Western civilization has been transmitting us for at least 2,000 years. The idea that we shouldn't value nature because our reward or whatever is in the next life. You know, and this is such a crock, you know, uh, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. I rather doubt it, but we have to learn to value nature in this space of time. So let me, so may I ask you, how old are you guys? I'm 30, about to be 31. And, and she's I'm 28. 28. Okay. So you're at a wonderful age here. <laughs> You know, my daughter is 30, and so you're these millennial, this millennial generation, you know, which I have to say, you're fine people. I don't, I don't care what is said about the millennials. They are <laughs> more conscious, kinder, more compassionate, more intelligent generation than I've seen come along in a long time. So... You know, the fact that you guys do what you do, you go to Africa, you join the Peace Corps, you go to South America, people who push the envelope a little bit in their lives are people that make a difference. And so just keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Thank you very much. Uh, so many people want, you know, they're so afraid, you know, to take any mm. risk. They just want comfort going to go to school, get my MBA, get my BMW, get my wife in the suburbs. And, the, you know, <laughs> if that really is what they're passionate about, more power to them. But I think that most people, they're afraid to pursue what they have fire in the belly about. So, you know, when I talk to young people, I say, whatever you have fire in the belly about, just go for it, mm -hmm. you know, and, don't worry if it's going to get you a career, you know, or anything. Well, you know, I'm an example of it. Uh, I, we, and my brother as well, we went for it because we were driven by passion. I would not yes. say by clarity or any idea what the hell we were doing, you know, it's <laughs> just being driven forward by it. But we just felt compelled to, uh, to do this. And we, uh, well, you know, we turned out okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe not even successful in many many people's view, but you know, I've had an amazing life, and I have never really regretted. I, I feel like I owe psychedelics a great uh, debt for just get, helping me stumble into all these peculiar places and. Uh, you know, not just the experiences, but the places I've traveled, the people I've met. It's been very rich. And, you know, I I look at many people on the streets and in, you go around in this society there. And again, I'm not boasting. I, I have compassion for these people, but there seem to be so many people you can just tell on their faces how unhappy they are mm -hmm. you know how afraid they are uh often how unhealthy they are mm -hmm. uh it doesn't need to be that way you know and, and these 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 psychedelics can be tools 
to just help people, as Sarah said, you step back from your life a little bit, you can reevaluate it, come away with a better understanding of kind of your existential situation. And based on that, you can be a little happier. Uh, and maybe, a little, you know, everybody, you can't be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, but you know what I'm saying. You live yes. a more genuine life, a more mindful life, I think, if you have the, the gift of, of uh, psychedelics. Absolutely. I mean, I can attest that the my first psychedelic experience definitely jolted me awake out of the societal slumber that I had just, you know, succumbed to for the first, I don't know, 20 years of my life. And after finally getting the courage and exploring safely these psychedelic realms of all kinds, you know, um, both, you know, mushrooms, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca, all kinds of experiences that just it startles you awake so to speak but it also there's this you become thirsty for more you want to keep pulling back more curtains and more curtains how deep does this go who are we at the core what's our core essence and it's it's something that i agree with you wholeheartedly if majority of the population partook in these experiences in a safe way and were able to integrate those lessons back into their daily lives I can't even imagine what kind of world we would live in today, you know, and following your passions. It's like you're fulfilling your calling, your soul imperative to just put one foot in front of the other and lead with that fire. And typically you end up in a place that you would never regret, you know. And that is a similar message that you shared in the sense that, you know, people need to get out of their comfort zones, take risks and really let it all down and just go for it. because. Because, you know, we get to the middle of our lives and we're thinking back to all of these times that we could have had the chance to make the decision to do something that may have jolted us out of our comfort zone, but we never did it. So why not live those moments, live those times and really do it? Because it's just once you do it, I mean, life unfolds in such a beautiful way that you can never imagine. And even all the trials and tribulations that come along with it, they seem much more rewarding. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you you can, I mean, the inherent nature, I guess, of of taking chances is that it's not always going to go well, but (laughs) that's kind of the price that you pay. I do think, I mean, I think the kind of world that we we could live in if if psychedelics were more widely available and, and more people understood kind of what they are, and that's happening. And it's happening not fast enough, but it is mm-hmm. happening. But I think that we'd live, we'd have live our lives with more clarity. We would have more empathy for other people, you know, and we treat people better as a result of that. And you know, I mean, I mean, all the and we'd have a lot more compassion for the planet. You know, and in some ways, a lot of times it really it originates in this in the so-called you know mystical experience in the sense of you know we are all one, right? That's one of the chief things that the profound psychedelic experiences brings home to you. We are all one, and by we I mean everything is all one. You know, mm-hmm. it's we're not different from plants and animals, the planet, each other. 
And that's a big thing. So all of the things in our society that divide us, uh, and I seem, they seem to be very much on the ascendant in the, in the, in the for a political climate. Hopefully this is temporary. It's, it's, it's fear-based is what it is. Mm-hmm. All, all the, uh, so much is going on that it's all about you know, not bringing people together, but actually dividing people, mm-hmm. building fences. And it's like, you know, you over there, and you're not like me, you know, so you must be dangerous or bad or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is very unhealthy, and, uh, and psychedelics uh, can help help with that. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I think partly also uh, just the fact that a lot of these come from plants or mushrooms. I think that makes a big difference because you can grow plants, you can grow mushrooms, you can, and then you can do what plant people have always done. You share the plants, the knowledge of how to use them, the knowledge of how to grow them. So there's no way they can stop it. You know, this is something that happens across the back fences of gardeners everywhere. You know, if they happen to be turned on gardeners, so they, you know, they have that. (laughs) And that's, uh, that's a good thing. I mean, it's very stealthy. And because of that, it can't be stopped. You don't have to make a fuss to, uh, you know, even be particularly public to share that knowledge with other people. Absolutely. And, you know, the the power of these plants in any form, you know, I've worked, uh, I'm a certified herbalist. And, uh, you know, for the past little while now, I've been really working with the plants and making my own tinctures and, and really getting into the spiritual aspect of these plants. And I mean, obviously, aside from my, my uh, ayahuasca experiences, DMT experiences, and so on, but these plants are such masterful teachers and it really brings us back into the feminine and where we need to be going and shifting our consciousness and getting back into the feminine because the feminine we've suppressed for so long as you mentioned this male dominated society and more people need to get back in touch with that if we want to start to elevate our own consciousness well i think also the plants teach us to tune into the subtle energies and the way that they interact with our biochemistry and the way we interact with theirs and to be able to be more conscious of those subtle energies and the interactions, you become more conscious of everyday life, your normal actions day to day. And so it can be translated from these, this ingestion of this plant or it's, you know, experiencing its properties to how you interact in your day to day life, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, one of the things I think, you know, uh, that they make you understand at least is that we are really not running things. Uh, <laughs> yes. Things. Actually, the plants are running things, if you think about it. For one thing, it's they're sustaining life on Earth, you know, through this miracle of photosynthesis that they're able to do. And you've probably heard me rant about all that if you've listened to me. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> big deal you know photosynthesis is a big deal and uh you know and as a result you know 
they are trying to maintain uh, a biochemical equilibrium on the biospheric level, which we're busily underbinding, but they're producing oxygen and taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and we're putting it back faster than, you know, so some of those uh, feedback mechanisms that are keeping equilibrium going are, are stressed right now. But whether or not, so I think, I do believe in plant intelligence, you know, mm-hmm. not, not, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I think that plants exhibit intelligent behavior, but they don't think the way we do. They don't, it's not that kind of intelligence, you know, they respond to their environment through chemistry. Chemistry mm-hmm. is plants, they respond to their environment through chemistry and they come up with optimal solutions, you know, and that's the kind of intelligence. And I, I have said many times in public, I think things like ayahuasca, you know, they've escaped from the Amazon and they're essentially on the world stage. <laughs> they're trying to get the monkeys to wake up. You know, <laughs> so the planet, so they've had to, you know, get rather aggressive with this. And, and but that's, that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, you have to realize we're involved in a co-evolutionary process with everything on Earth. And a lot of that is mediated through chemistry and it happens on time scales that we can barely comprehend. So this is the other thing. You have to take a, a long-term view of this because Gaia, the Earth mother or whatever you want to call her, she works on time scales of hundreds of years, you know, and I do not worry about life on Earth. I, I mean, we are not a threat to life on Earth as such. We can do serious damage to life on Earth, but we can do greater damage to ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gaia may reach a point where it just it's clear. It's like, okay, this is not working, you know. Eject. <laughs> Such a mess that we get off the rock. Get off the rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Gaia's okay. Gaia will persist in some form until the sun burns out. So we've got a few billion years. You know, Gaia's one tough bitch. <laughs> hard to, you know, undermine that but certainly but in a sense life on earth is an ongoing experiment if we look at if we look at evolution you know evolution sort of brings up one species after another it's a kind of experiment 99 percent of the species that have ever lived on earth are gone you know and only those that happen to be here now so you know which category do we want to be in? <laughs> the ones that are gone or the ones that are still uh, still trying to live, you know, still trying to make our way. So it's it's, it's interesting anyway. Have you uh, have you read I'm just curious, have you read The Law of One? I have not. No. Okay. We were talking about we we're all one before, and it's prompted me to ask you if you had read that, just kind of deviated from the conversation. And then another uh, person, of which I'm sure you read, is Stephen Buner. And oh, his, yeah. 
his his talking, you know, his lectures about plant intelligence and also his books, which are very uh, just brilliant. Yeah, I I am a real fan of Stephen Buhner. Definitely, he has the right idea. There's an interest, another uh, interesting person you may know about who writes uh, writes about mushrooms more. His name is Simon Powell. Have you ever heard of him? He's no, I don't think you. He's written the first one. He wrote this, the psilocybin solution. Yes. You know that one? You've heard I, that I've one? heard of it, but I haven't read it, no. The second one is called Darwin's Unfinished Business. <laughs> Intelligence manifests in nature. And the third one is called The Magic Mushroom Explorer. Maybe I have it right here. I do have it right here, but I don't know. Anyway, those are all... Ah, yeah. This one here. Nice. It's very nice writes very intelligently and, and humorously about a lot of these things. Quite entertaining books. I highly recommend them. And it's sort of in, in the uh, in the vein of Buner, um, but it's more focused on, on the fungi. Um, but, uh, yeah. There, there are many good ones out there. There sure is. What do you think that we could do um you know, those of us who are awakened to the power of psychedelics used appropriately, what do you think that we could do to help integrate this even more into the masses? You know, obviously there's people like you and your colleagues and so many people who are working diligently and spreading awareness and knowledge and research, but what could um, even just the everyday person do to help move this along? Well, I think in the first place, anybody that really understands the importance of psychedelics and is into it you know, is by definition not an everyday person. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Touche. We are special people because we have this gift and this, this perception. Not that we really did anything to earn it. We're just, we're just blessed, you know. But I think you just... Uh, you have to find the others, you know, you have to, there are interest groups, uh, uh, you're probably a little, are you, you're probably not in universities or anything like that anymore, you're actually in the real world, mm -hmm. uh, not that they aren't, but, but in a lot of campuses now there is, uh, you know, psychedelic clubs, there is actually a campus-wide, nationwide movement called the Psychedelic Club. And so there are a lot of interest groups at universities. There are conferences. You know, I don't know if you can go, like the MAPS conference back in April, with psychedelic science, really a landmark conference, you know. Uh, so I think it's just use the tools you have. Social media, for all its flaws, is very powerful for this. Uh, you know, and there are interest groups on Facebook that you, know, you can you can uh, you can join, or you can let other people know about. I don't know if you know. Um, can I put up a couple plugs here? Uh, mm -hmm, absolutely. absolutely, please do. Well, have you heard of uh, ESPD fifty? No. Uh, oh, interesting. I thought we covered everything. ESPD50 is a conference 
that I organized in okay. uh, and uh, it, it stands for Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And 50 is that it was the 50th anniversary of the first conference by that name that was held in San Francisco in 1967, sponsored by the US government. And they interesting symposium volume, which was kind of the, the state of the art at the time. You know, there was a closed conference. The public was not invited. Taxpayer, the only thing the taxpayer ever got out of this was the symposium volume, which was published. And for a long time, you could order it from the uh, US government printing office. Well, it's long out of date, uh, but you can get a PDF of it from Arrowwood, actually. And uh, um, the conference was supposed to you know, be the first of a series, kind of once every 10 years, there'd be one of these conferences to kind of look at the state of the art. Well, the war on drugs came along and you know that never happened. Uh, so I felt that the book was really influential in my life. So I felt like, I wanted to do this anniversary symposium and everything fell together and we did, we did it. And uh, if you go to ESPD50.com, uh, you can see the conference, you can see what we did. One of the things we're doing, we're bringing out uh, the, the original book from 1967 and, and the 19, 2017 book as uh, collector's edition box set so we're pre-selling those things off the website and then in order to and you can find out about that on that site and also the web the facebook which links from there but one of the things we wanted to do was uh not be elitist not be exclusive like the first one was and so with social media we were able to do that so we live streamed that thing, all three days of it, over about 12 Facebook platforms. Wow. And uh, at various times, we had 50,000 people looking at these lectures. Wow. So that was an amazing thing, you know. And over the period of three days, about half a million people clicked our, our website. Wow. And all the videos are... Uh, now up there they're actually at dmt the spirit molecule and it's one of the places they're posted you probably know that form yeah. right? yes yes uh, so if you go there or if you just search on espd 50 uh on uh, on facebook it'll, it'll come up so Great. all those videos are there from all three days of the conference so this is how you do it you do it by using these tools to educate people about and, and make it excited. I mean, a whole lot more people know what the word ethnopharmacology means, you know, as a result of this conference. So, so it was it was it was great fun. It was a lot of work, but the book is in progress, and and people can it'll be finished hopefully by. The end of December. We're almost there. We've got uh, all the papers. It's getting laid out. We hope to go to press 
well, we hope to start the presses rolling, shall we say, early in December. It should be available sometime in January. Great. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, the work that you guys are doing, it's incredibly inspirational, and I want to encourage our listeners to keep up with that. And if you're not familiar with the psychedelic realm, you know, educate yourself through books and websites and, like he said, forums, and just explore because you, there's nothing to lose. <laughs> There is more information now about this than there ever was. So I put the just ESPD50.com. Fantastic. uh, I'd also like to tell people about the, I uh, organize ayahuasca retreats about every, about twice a year in the Sacred Valley. So can I plug that? Yes, yes. and do. we might even uh, join you. We'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely if you could do that. It's the Bio Life Sciences <laughs> slash event. And the link is there. You can go there and look at uh, You can. We have two coming up in January back to back, which is not usually the way we do it. But as it happens, there are two in January. So if you know anyone that might want to come, We'll spread it. We'll share it. And what else? Uh, you know about the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I guess that's about it. I don't know what else to plug right now, but uh, yeah. Well, so, wonderful. Then our listeners know where to find you and keep up with you. That's that's wonderful. You also have a Facebook, right, that people can like and follow? Several Facebook pages, yeah. <laughs> We've got uh, probably the Dennis McKenna public figure uh, page is uh, is the place to look. Awesome. We'll get you tagged in the uh, podcast and and get people uh, sent over there as well through that. Yeah, and and do let me know because uh, I can put that up on my Facebook page in different places. I mean, it's a... You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, know, so let me know when and where it's uh, posted and I'll make sure uh, I get it linked up. Will do. You know what? I'd like to ask you just one more quick, short question. It's kind of off the, off the, the beaten path, but if... If if you could give a little bit of insight, um, what is something that we can all do every day to contribute to the well-being of our society and world at large? (laughs) She had to put you on the spot, Dennis. (laughs) That's actually a question from my brother, who's a therapist, so it's appropriate that it came from him. (laughs) Well, I, I think that you know, one thing we can do, it's very simple. Um, you don't have to take any drugs. You don't have to spend any money, but you can do this every day. And just remind yourself how lucky you are to be alive. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful thing. How marvelous this universe is that we are, that we live in. You know, that that's what keeps me going. It's... Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've long since given up on understanding, thinking I'm going to understand it all. You know, <laughs> probably not, but I'm always going to be surprised. So that's a good thing. Every day you get up, there's something new to learn. And 
keeps you going. I love it. Yeah, gratitude and curiosity. If I had to use two words, gratitude and curiosity. Awesome. Perfect. Great, great tools to have in the toolbox. Thank you yeah. so much, Dennis, for coming on to our show. It's been a pleasure. Very much a pleasure for me, too. So good luck to you guys. Keep doing it. Keep trekking and keep in touch. Thank Will do. You. Thanks, Dennis. Okay. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dennis, for that much-needed conversation. Oh, I just wanted to go forever. You know, Sarah and I talk a lot about all different things. We explore the cosmos together. and Every day, guys. Our every conversations day. are deep. <laughs> so it's really nice to connect with other people that are on that same level and that are able to have those sorts of conversations. We just really enjoy that when we can get those people on. So again, thank you to Dennis for coming on. But now, your health tip of the episode. So you might be a little intimidated to dive right into the psychedelic realm, which is understandable. But if you want to kind of ease into it, you might want to try some Blue Lotus. It's a very subtle plant you're not gonna go tripping or anything and guess what it's 100 legal yes so this plant has been used for thousands of years in religious ceremonies and in it originated from the nile river in egypt so this is the thing with any herb you want to make sure that you're getting high quality and there's it's always you know, it can be a little bit difficult to find because there's a lot of imposters out there or they're not harvesting the plant the right way. So I recommend that you go to one of your local herb shops and talk to them, see what recommendations they have for you. But Blue Lotus is incredible. Um, So they would use these in religious ceremonies, as I mentioned, to reach higher levels of consciousness. And the plant is also fantastic for relaxation it's calming euphoric it actually has some aphrodisiac qualities so like i said you can you can find this sometimes at some local herb shops sometimes they might have to special order it but it can be drinking 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 (laughs) (laughs) you can drink it as a tea or you can actually smoke it so, Which we have not done, we but we have heard from a reliable source that it really enhanced her meditation uh, practice. And lucid dreaming. Exactly. So check it out, Blue Lotus. Yes. Once again, thanks for sticking around. If you stuck around for this whole episode, you are a trooper. It was a lengthy one, but a good one. Yeah, so again, as I mentioned in the intro, if there is anybody that you would like us to get on, we will do our best to bring them onto the show or any other topics you want to cover. If you give us a topic, say, hey, I want to hear more about this. We'll find the person that is a good, credible source to bring on to speak on that topic. So uh, reach out to us, send us a message. We love hearing from you. And leave a review. And please leave a review. We love them. You can't resist my sing-song voice. No, you can't. You don't want to hear my singing voice. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't want to hear it. We'll leave that one up to Sarah. Take care, guys. Bye.